Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Kevin, and I'm here with Megana. I hope you're enjoying the trauma series as much as we are. Before we dive into today's episode, I just want to remind you guys about the collaboration we have going on with RAS ACS Surgery, where we are covering the landmark papers in surgery on our YouTube channel, all in five minutes or less. Um, and Megano is one of the pioneers that helped get this going. So Megano, can you tell us a little bit more about this project and what the first four papers are? Yeah, Kevin. So I'm really excited about this. Um, the first uh, video that we have is on the Stampede trial, and this is about bariatric surgery's utility um, for uh, diabetes and obesity. And then the second one is on the EVAR trials, um, so assessing the utility of endovascular aortic repairs. Um, The third one is a very unique one where it's actually a few papers mixed together um, to discuss irrigation versus suction for perforated appendicitis. And then the last one that we have up right now is on lobectomies versus doing a limited resection for um, T1 thoracic uh, lung cancers. And can you tell me, uh, tell them how to find this? Yeah. So if you go to our YouTube channel and you search for Behind the Knife, we have made a playlist. It's called the Landmark Papers Journalcast, and you should be able to find it there. We've also linked to it in our Twitter. So if you're not following us, go follow us there and we um, will keep you updated. Great. Thanks, Megan. Welcome back to the Big T Trauma Series on Behind the Knife. In this series, we cover clinically-oriented material that focuses on how best to care for traumatically injured and critically ill patients. My name is Patrick Georgioff. I'm a Trauma Surgery Fellow at the University of Texas Memorial Hermann Red Duke Trauma Institute in Houston, Texas. And today, I'm joined by Jason Brill, also a Trauma Surgery Fellow at the University of Texas in Houston and a Lieutenant Commander in the U.S. Navy. Great to be here, Patrick. As usual, I need to start with the disclaimer. Uh, that the opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and no official endorsement should be inferred by the United States Navy. All right, so today we're going to talk about acute traumatic spinal cord injury. Great. Uh, In 2010, there were 12,400 spinal cord injuries in the United States, and motor vehicle accidents accounted for roughly half of all injuries, while falls, violence, and sports accidents accounted for 10 to 15%. And 80% of injuries occurred in males, and 25% involved booze. Due to its exposed location above the torso and its inherent flexibility, the cervical spine is the most commonly injured part of the spinal column. I think a lot of people probably would suppose that. So let's get started by talking about C-spine injuries. We're going to focus on blunt injury because, as you heard in the neck injury episode, penetrating cervical spine cord injury is, is pretty rare. And so are unstable injuries to the bony spine. If a spinal cord injury is present, these patients will typically present with the deficit. Yeah, that's definitely a good, a good tidbit, knowing that you know, penetrating injury, if they have a spinal cord injury, they're going to present with the deficit yeah. almost every time. So um, you know, for this reason, then, you know, practice guidelines from the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma uh, state that immobilization of the cervical spine is only necessary when a neurologic deficit is present or a proper physical examination cannot be performed, for example, in an unconscious patient. And 
and the mechanism is suspicious for a possible spinal cord or column injury. Okay. So basic question for patients with blunt injury, who needs a C-collar? Right. So pre-hospitally, spinal cord immobilization is broadly applied to patients at risk of cervical spine uh, injury. And the practice itself is recommended by uh, ATLS and uh, pre-hospital life support uh, guidelines. Right. It's always a safe practice to maintain spine immobilization in at-risk chronic patients until further evaluation can take place. Right. But with that being said, uh, the rationale for doing so is actually not that well supported. Right. The purpose of a cervical collar is to prevent further motion of the cervical spine by maintaining inline stabilization that could theoretically worsen a C-spine injury. Uh, such as convert a partial unstable fracture into a fully unstable fracture or convert a partial spinal cord injury into a complete spinal cord transection. So there's an issue with that though, right? Now, Jason, we we, we actually don't know if C-collars work, right? Yeah. There just isn't data, which is kind of crazy, right? Because we, uh, you know, from... The very beginning, we've seen C collars on everyone. It's so important. You Absolutely, just get and, the C collar on and stressed at every level. Yeah. Stressed in the pre-hospital arena. Stressed and you know as we're moving patients. But right, we don't know if C collars effectively immobilize the spine. Crazy, um, you know, or if small voluntary movements actually even cause harm. So that's a good question to ask as well. Uh, so there. Interestingly enough, and we dug through this for a while, there is no data demonstrating improved neurologic outcomes when C-collars are used. Yep. And a study that's probably never going to happen either. And then to make matters worse, C-collars may impede airway management. They increase the risk of aspiration and, well known, they increase intracranial pressure. Right. Not to mention the fact that they're also terribly uncomfortable. And they almost never fit the way they should. I mean, how often do you walk into the patient's room, uh, whether it's the ICU, the floor, the, and the yeah, thing and is like, like oh, man, over that their is, face. That is a great looking like, C-collar. It's, it's literally like laughable. Yeah. You're like, oh, my God, what yeah. are we actually doing with this thing? Yeah. Um, More for show sometimes. Right, right. So, again, in patients at risk of spine injury, they should be immobilized with a cervical collar, hopefully one that fits. Kept flat, log rolled, spinal precautions, etc. But if these aren't needed, the goal should be to get them removed as soon as possible. So, Patrick, how do you go about clearing someone's right. spine? And that's a fantastic question. That's one of the main focuses of what we're going to talk about in this episode today. Um, now, first, we need to decide if they need imaging or not. And when we talk about imaging, we're talking about a non-contrast CT scan. Um, that's assuming the scanner is available. Uh, So multi-view conventional x-rays have pretty much gone by the wayside due to the far superior uh, performance of CT scans. That's absolutely correct. In one meta-analysis of about 3,800 patients imaged for cervical uh, spine injury or at least suspected C-spine trauma, the sensitivity of radiography was 51%, not great, Flip flip of the coin basically, Whereas CT was 98%. So a big difference with a lot of clinical uh, uh, importance there. Right. And CT scans are also much faster and they're less cumbersome than the multi-view cervical spine x-rays. And we should mention, though, that when we talk about non-contrast CT scans of the neck, we are making two assumptions. Uh, The first is that the CT scan is, quote, unquote, high quality. So often defined as axial slices of three millimeters or less. And the second assumption we make is that the CT scan is read by a qualified attending radiologist, not 
you know, 2 a.m. is the prelim resident read. Right. Uh, and then you learn only to learn six hours later that the, the attending overread it. But a final read from an attending radiologist, one who's qualified to read those those uh, next scans. Right. And that's our practice here. You know, you can't really clear someone until you have that, that final attending read right. because that's the way these studies were done. Those were, um, you know, the way that the, the methodology of those studies were set up. So if you're not following the way that the studies were set up, you can't say that you fall into, like you said, this quote unquote, high quality, uh, CT scan that's right. uh, guidance. So, uh, so how do we determine if patients need a non-contrast C-spine CT scan? Right. All right. So this is something you've probably heard a lot about and then can never remember because I can never <laughs> remember these either, but we can use one of two guidelines. So one is the Nexus guideline uh, and the other is the Canadian C-spine rule. And so uh, both of these are well validated and they're both very reasonable and totally acceptable to use. Although there is some data not great showing that Canadian C-spine rule may have better sensitivity. So let's start with the Canadian rule, shall we? Eh? Eh? Uh, let's talk about it. All right. So the Canadian C-spine rule has three steps. First, you need to scan the patient if they're older than 65, they have a neurologic deficit on exam, and or had a dangerous mechanism of injury. So if they don't meet any of those criteria and they're alert and stable, you can check them against a list of low risk a list of low risk criteria to determine if they should be scanned. All right, so let's talk about that again, right? So, so Canadian C spine rules there's a hard stop for three groups, right? They're older than sixty five. Doesn't even really that kind of takes everything off the table. You scan them, right? Mm -hmm. They have neuro deficits. Easy, yeah. yeah you scan them should be easy to always. remember. And then this more vague of a dangerous mechanism of injury, which is open to lots and lots of interpretation. Yeah, many differing opinions on what that really means. But there's plenty of people that don't hit those three categories, right? Little tiny, you know, twenty mile per hour, little fender bender, some some very mild thing fell out of a chair, something. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there are criteria. Um, yeah, so Again, the, the, the low risk, yeah, the right? low risk criteria. So those criteria include, uh, I'm, I'm just going to read them all off, a simple rear-end motor vehicle collision. If the patient is actually in sitting position in the ED when they arrive without a collar on. If they've been ambulatory at any time after the accident. If they have a delayed onset of neck pain. And they have the absence of midline cervical spine tenderness. If the patient meets one or more of these criteria, then you can perform range of motion testing. If not, you have to take them to the scanner. Exactly. So to assess range of motion, you have the patient actively rotate their neck 45 degrees to the left and right. And if they're able to do this, then they don't require any further imaging. If they can't, again, you need to send them to the scanner. Right now. So if it's real life, though, and you have a patient you don't think needs C-spine imaging, I would honestly just get bust out these rules on your on your your phone, or I actually have a picture from some document of the C-spine rules that I have in my favorite folder in my photos. And if I'm ever to the point where I'm like, yeah, I don't really think this patient necessarily needs imaging. Like I'll pull it up, the actual, all those rear-ended and this and that kind of stuff. So that I can say, I meet the criteria and I, and I don't, I can safely not scan this person and I'll document it as such too. Right. And, and that is one of the issues with the Canadian C-spine criteria is that they're very specific. And if you don't use them all the time in your facility, um, and honestly, the patients that we often see in the trauma bay, it's unusual for us not to scan for right. for blunt mechanism, sure. unusual for us not to scan C-spine. So um, I, I think in some ways, the Nexus criteria are a little simpler just based on the population that we often see here. Sure, sure. And uh, yes, I think I agree, simpler uh, in a lot of ways. So the Nexus low-risk criteria 
state that cervical spine imaging is indicated for trauma patients unless they meet all of the following criteria. No posterior cervical midline tenderness, no evidence of intoxication, GCS of 15, no focal neurologic deficits, and no painful distraction, distracting injuries. I'm going to read that one more time because this is good. You, you're going to scan all trauma patients unless they meet all the following criteria. No posterior uh, cervical mid, midline cervical tenderness, no evidence of intoxication, GCS of 15, no focal neurologic deficits, and no painful distracting injuries. Yeah, so a bit easier to remember because you just need to remember those criteria and unless this patient fits all of them, you, you need to scan them. Right. Um, still, because uh, it would be a bad day if you missed something, I still look at my phone and go through the criteria, e- even if I truly think that yep. I always clinically myself. we can clear them. It's yeah. so, when it is a rare day, too, that yep. in, in our practice, at least, that we're not scanning all these people. So, all right, what about a distracting injury? So what makes an injury actually distracting? Uh, this confused me initially. Yeah. So, um, so there's no precise definition. Uh, you'll see in some older textbooks that uh, a classic example is a long bone fracture. Um, so if they had a long bone fracture, then that's distracting. Well, I've seen patients with a femur fracture who were sitting at me you know, just talking and, right. and look fine. And then I've seen patients with a hangnail who were hysterical. So... <laughs> Um, essentially, a, a, I think a well-agreed-upon clinical definition is the distracting injury is any injury severe enough to distract the patient from their possible neck pain. In right. other words, the pain they're having somewhere else is going to override their sensation of um, you know possible neck injury. Sure, sure. All right. Well, we'll leave leave it at that. And and I want to make a, a side note. So. In regards to when to get a CTA of the neck, right? We're talking about non-con CT scans. We're talking about getting a, a CT angiography of the neck. I want to refer listeners to our very first episode of the series that covers neck trauma. So on the neck trauma episode, we discussed the criteria for obtaining a CTA of the neck to rule out blunt cerebrovascular injury. And so we're not going to cover that portion today. Still a great podcast to go and, oh, and review gosh. because, uh, well, so good. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. Because listen, to Dr. It. Jane McCauley is, is, yep. is on that one. She does a good job with it. All right, great. So let's uh, let's say you scan a patient, and they do have a cervical spine injury, uh, proven on uh, on CT imaging. Easy, right? So you keep them in a collar, consult spine surgeons, or transfer them to a facility that has one. If you're not in a um, you know level two or one facility that has those consultants readily available. What if the scan is negative, though? Are you just good to remove uh-huh. the patient's C-collar? A throw distressing situation. Yeah. Although it is very satisfying to take the C-collar off and throw it in the trash yes, and say, be gone with this yeah. dastardly thing. But, <laughs> power um, right, right. But so there really, there's two categories of patients here, right? We, we put them into two different buckets. So those who are alert and interactive, right? And then those that are obtunded. Uh, so let's start with the alert folks. Uh, if they have a negative CT scan of the neck, you can clear their C-spine by removing their collar and performing a physical exam. Wait, what's, what's a physical yes. exam? When you Patrick? use your hand, you touch the patient, oh. interact with them directly. Oh, uh, we still do that, yes, I guess. Yes, yeah. sir. How, and there are, how is that yes. physical exam performed? Let me, allow me to tell you. So there are two parts uh, to clinical clearance. All right. Now, the first is palpation of the cervical spinous processes. So if there is pain on palpation, the patient cannot be clinically cleared. Okay, the second, and again, this is the spinous processes, not 
muscles, not the paraspinous muscles, but right. the, the a, bones. The good to differentiate bones. if they're okay. having muscle tenderness on you know lateral aspect. That is not what we're talking about right. here. And the second is active range of motion. So if the patient is able to touch their chin to their chest, if they're able to look up to the sky and turn their heads towards their right and left shoulders without pain, okay, they can be cleared. Okay, but again, what about tenderness of the paraspinal muscles? Does that preclude clearance? Is that a distracting injury? Right, and so we're talking generally it does not, right? So some degree of muscle pain and tenderness is expected, right? It is bone pain and range of motion that we're most interested in. Okay, and, and what if the patient has a negative CT scan but fails this clinical clearance based on your physical exam? Right, so in that case, you keep the collar on. Okay, consult the spine surgery team uh, at your institution and consider an MRI, uh, which we're going to discuss in a little bit more detail in a bit. Great. And don't forget, if you're clearing a patient's spine, be sure to document well all of your findings, right. uh, especially if there's a, a neurologic deficit of some kind. Um, that's a situation where even with negative imaging, you, you need to call a consultant, document your exam at baseline, keep the collar on and, and, and head out from there. So um, what about obtunded patients? That's another, I would say, a little bit of a gray zone. Right. So this is where it gets more hazy, right? I think the awake patients are a lot easier to deal with. And that's because CT scans aren't perfect, right? Although they're actually near perfect. That's not a, that's a correct statement in mm -hmm. saying that. Uh, and as trauma, uh, as trauma surgeons, we don't want to miss an injury, though, um, that could result in permanent neurologic deficit. That's the fear we're talking about here. That's why we're so wound up about these things. Yeah, the stakes are, are high. You, right. you don't want to further injure a patient. That's for sure. But there has to be some decent recent data on this. Yeah, there actually is. And, and that's when going to uh, guide our discussion. So for this conversation, uh, we're going to rely on practice guidelines from the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, a.k.a. EAST, and a prospective observational study put out by the Western Trauma Association, a.k.a. the WTA. Let's start with the EAST guidelines. This guideline was put out in 2015 and can be accessed on the EAST website. Right. And so the guidelines, these ones rely on a systematic review. And what the guidelines try to determine, they ask a very specific question, is whether or not CT, uh, CT scan alone can be used to clear the C-spine of obtunded blunt trauma patients who also did not meet Nexus guidelines, right? So they didn't pass those um, requirements uh, to not be scanned. So in these studies, uh, the definition of, of obtunded was verily defined as having a GCS less than 15, being unconscious, uh, intubated, having an unreliable exam, having distracting injury, or uh, being intoxicated. So if those were the inclusion criteria, then the patients that were scanned then had some kind of follow-up right. that split the, the groups. Either MRI, which was the most common, X-ray, and or clinical follow-up. Right. Uh, and so uh, the authors found in this study that the CT scan had a 91% negative predictive value for stable injuries and a 100% ne negative predictive value for unstable injuries. Remember, uh, negative predictive value is the probability that subjects with a negative screening test truly don't have the disease or the finding of interest. And again, these patients were followed up, as Jason just said, they had, this was all deter you know, confirmed with MRI, uh, X-ray, or clinical follow-up. Again, MRI was the most common amongst the studies. Yeah, and the most conservative. So based on these findings, the EAST guidelines conditionally recommend cervical so uh, collar removal after a negative high quality, aka 3 millimeter axial slice thickness, CT of the C-spine. 
Right. So, so you said they conditionally recommended. So why is that? Well, it was a systematic review and the data was variable and of relatively low quality, according uh, at least to their rent. Right. So let's also talk about a few more of the arguments that the authors make. So one question they posed uh, in the paper was, if collars are to be removed in a high risk of tunded population, then why even use a C-spine clearance protocol for the low-risk, neurologically normal, who have a negative CT scan? Yeah, pushing on the cervical spinous processes, ranging the neck, etc. Right. Exactly, right. And the authors argue that with a high-quality CT scan, cervical collar removal can be logically argued uh, for any population, whether they're appended or not. Sure. I mean, after all, they found a 100% negative predictive value for unstable injuries. Right. And the authors uh, also uh, acknowledge that cervical collar removal may result in neurologic change and even paralysis, a very, very serious problem, but go on to argue that we cannot continue indiscriminate two-stage sequential screening for C-spine injuries if the injury rate is near 0% for the first test and the second uh, adjunctive test results in false positives and inconsistent treatment plans. Yeah, so what's that all about? Right, so this is in, in reference to MRI. So MRI is better than CT at evaluating tissue that is in bone, right? This includes discs, ligaments, the spinal cord itself. Uh, but the sensitivity of MRI for soft tissue injury is fantastic, but its specificity, not so much. So this results in false positives. In fact, one study showed false positive rates of up to 40%. So this puts the patient at risk of unnecessary interventions. Not to mention, even obtaining an MRI to begin with can present challenges. The scans are long, often more than an hour. They require the patient lie flat. They can invoke anxiety severe enough to require anxiolytics. And typically it happens in the middle, in the middle of the, of the night, night, down in the basement, in the basement. where oh, they are squirreled away, never to be seen by the residents and the um, trauma surgeons running around. The horrors oh. of the MRI. Oh, and they're really expensive. And they're expensive. So, that's a tough one. So, so to wrap it up, the EAST authors recommend that future directions and management of C-spine trauma will require large, multidisciplinary, protocol-driven, prospective cohort studies uh -huh. and clinical trials. Well, apparently, all you need to do is ask, uh, because in between ski runs... Uh, and shots off of the Shotsky, the fantastic people at Western Trauma Association heeded this call. And they put together their very own prospective trial. Right. So this was a prospective multi-center observational study at 18 North American trauma centers. All adult blunt trauma patients underwent a structured clinical examination. Then the nexus failures underwent a CT of the C-spine with clinical follow-up to discharge. The primary outcome measure was sensitivity and specificity of CT for clinically significant injuries requiring surgical stabilization, halo, or cervical thoracic orthotic placement. So just over 10,000 uh, patients were evaluated, so not, not a small study. And half of those included were unevaluable, or they had distracting injuries, and the other half had midline C-spine tenderness. There was actually a very small uh, number, less than 5%, who actually had neurologic symptoms. And so out of those scanned, only 1.9% had a clinically significant C-spine injury requiring surgery or non-surgical stabilization of some kind. So in this study, CT had a sensitivity and specificity for clinically significant injury of 99% and 91% and a negative predictive value of 99.9%. .9%. Right. But there were three 
or 0.03% false negative CT scans that missed a clinically significant injury. But here's the caveat. All of these patients had a focal neurologic abnormality that their index clinical examination was consistent with central cord syndrome. Right. Uh, an important caveat for sure, right? And so, so the WTA study um, determined that CT has a sensitivity uh, and negative predictive value of nearly 100%. And a sensitivity of 91% in blunt trauma patients who failed nexus criteria. So that's pretty good, right? Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I would consider that excellent. So have these results changed practice? Right. So, so sure. And, and for example, here at Memorial Hermann, we removed the collar uh, from alert patients who failed the Canadian C-spine rule or the nexus criteria and obtunded patients if the following criteria are met. Uh, the patient has a negative CT C-spine read by an attending radiologist. Um, they have a normal neuromuscular exam and function, and they're able to range their neck. Great. So let's move on to the acute management of spinal cord injury. Right. So let's say, Jason, you receive uh, a patient in the trauma bay who was involved in a motor vehicle crash. Their heart rate is 55. Their systolic blood pressure is 80. And on exam, uh, she cannot move her legs. Terrible situation. Yeah. I mean, I, honestly, this is one of the hardest things for to deal with. Yeah. It, it's terrible. So let's start in the pre-hospital setting. What needs to happen in the field when first responders evaluate these patients? Yeah, sure. So uh, again, if there's any concern whatsoever for spinal cord injury, extreme care should be taken to immobilize the spine, as we discussed at the, at the top of the episode. Correct. Including using a rigid collar, a backboard, log rolling when moving the patient. And what about the trauma bay? What do we need to be aware of when the patient arrives to us? Right. So as always, perform a complete and efficient primary and secondary survey. So if a spinal cord injury is suspected, the level and type of injury can be classified using the American Spinal Injury Association or ASIA impairment scale. So the ASIA scale helps determine the level of injury through motor and sensory testing at the bedside uh, and whether or not the injury is a complete injury or an incomplete injury. This is a legitimate tool used to convey useful clinical information about a patient's injury. Right. So, so for example, Asia A is a complete injury, meaning there's no uh, sensation or motor function below the level of injury. Asia B is sensory incomplete, and Asia C and D are different classifications for motor incomplete injuries. There are, of course, other more specific patterns of injury like central or anterior cord syndromes, but we're not going to talk too much about those today. Right. And, and also super important, we also need to be aware of airway and breathing difficulties that can occur with high spinal cord injuries. These patients require frequent suctioning and they very well may need early intubation. Yeah, very true. Approximately a third of patients with cervical spine injury will need to be intubated within 24 hours of admission. Right, big number. Yeah, and don't forget that even short episodes of hypoxia can cause secondary spinal cord injury. Right, and but intubating a patient, right? Intubating a patient with suspected cervical spine injury can be harrowing. So how can we go about this in a safe way, Jason? Sure. Uh, it's challenging because inline stabilization is a must, and this can make intubation particularly difficult because... Patients can't be put into the sniffing position, and that limits visual uh, visualization of the vocal cords. One option is a wake fiber optic intubation, um, but this really should only be attempted in stable patients and by providers with a lot of experience. Right. So you really want your best team on board. Yeah, you, know, absolutely. You, you need to be prepared. You need to make sure your eyes are dotted, T's are crossed, etc. Yeah, this and isn't uh, my first intubation scenario. No, absolutely not. Um, 
All right, let's move on to neurogenic shock. Or is it spinal shock? Aha. Uh-huh. Aha. Uh-huh. An important distinction, for sure, and often confused. Neurogenic shock refers to hypotension, usually with bradycardia, attributed to interruption of autonomic pathways in the spinal cord, causing decreased vascular resistance. Right, and neurogenic shock typically occurs with injuries that are T6 or higher, as this interrupts sympathetic input to the heart. Spinal shock, on the other hand, occurs immediately after injury when there is a loss of all spinal cord function below the level of the injury as evidenced with uh, flaccid paralysis, anesthesia, absent bowel and bladder control, and loss of reflex activity. Spinal shock may last several weeks before reflexes and other functions can return. Right, and it's uh, important to distinguish between the two because I often hear people using them interchangeably, right? Um, so, Jason, how do, we, how do we manage neurogenic shock? Yeah, so first, if the patient is bleeding, figure out how to stop the bleeding and resuscitate with blood products. Remember, this is a trauma patient after all. Second, you want to maintain a mean arterial blood pressure of 85 or greater to ensure adequate perfusion to the injured cord. And this can be done with fluid resuscitation to restore intravascular volume and or you know, up for debate and discussion vasopressors, which our teams here often do recommend to us. Right. Remember, a a lack of sympathetic tone affects arteries and veins and results in increased venous capacitance, meaning you've got to fill the tank first. And when it comes to fluid administration, you need to be uh, judicious, though, um, as crystalloid overload certainly may have negative effects on the spinal cord injury itself. Yeah. As we mentioned, uh, you may also need to use vasopressors to reach that MAP goal of greater than 85. The preferred vasopressor in this setting of spinal cord injury is norepinephrine. Phenylephrine can be used, but may cause some reflex bradycardia, which can then compound the bradycardia already present as part of your uh, Sure, if you have a high enough injury, right? Yeah. Um, So side note, Jason, do we have to have a central line to start norepi? No, absolutely don't, especially if it will delay starting the infusion, right? We want to avoid hypotension. Multiple studies have shown that a high-quality peripheral IV is totally safe for certain vasopressor infusion, and ideally, you will place a central line as soon as possible, but you don't want to delay that in order to delay then the adequate cord perfusion. Right, and what about the patient who has uh, a systolic blood pressure 78 and their heart rate is between like 30 and 36. You yeah, know, so severe bradycardia uh, can be treated, of course, with atropine uh, and or if, if truly needed, external or transvenous spacing. Now, and we should probably take a step back too and point out that bradycardia is a highly unusual finding, right, in a trauma patient. Yeah, for sure. In general, hypotensive patients should be tachycardic in a trauma setting. It's a normal response. Normal response. And if they're not, you need to think about spinal cord injury, especially in a, a trauma patient with the right mechanism, or um, some medical causes like six sinus syndrome, beta blockade, especially in your older patients. Okay, so we're in the trauma bay. We completed an efficient primary and secondary survey. We've maintained spinal immobility. We've determined the level of injury, and we used the Asia impairment scale to classify it. And we've considered the need for intubation and avoiding hypoxia. We're treating this patient's hypotension and bradycardia by insurance, ensuring the absence of hemorrhage. We're giving some fluids and start a little bit of norepinephrine to attain a map of greater than 85. Sounds like you have this well in hand, Patrick. Uh, well, all right. So what's next, though? Imaging. 
Yeah, don't, don't delay. Uh, these patients need to be put through the CT scanner as soon as possible so that we can better understand the extent of their injury and then get our spine surgery colleagues on board as soon as we can. Absolutely. Okay, so let's finish off with just a few key pointers when it comes to early ICU management of patients with spinal cord injury. So to be clear, this is by no means a comprehensive list, just some of the highlights. Sure, but these things are important to consider when transitioning the patient from the trauma bay to the ICU. Or when the patient sits in the trauma bay for eight hours waiting for an ICU bed, right? I've never seen that happen Never, before. ever. Don't, so don't say, say let's start with steroids, right? Uh, lots of conversation about steroids. So methylprednisone is the only treatment that has been suggested in clinical trials to improve neurologic outcomes in patients with acute non-penetrating spinal cord injury. However, the evidence uh, is limited and its use uh, very heavily debated. Right. Uh, this is a classic example of you need to read through all of the series uh, in the studies to come up with you know the final recommendation because you can pick pieces out of the literature that will absolutely say, yes, you should use steroids in this setting. So in 2013, based on the available evidence, the American Association for Neurological Surgeons and the Congress of Neurological Surgeons stated that the use of glucocorticoids in acute spinal injury is not recommended. Okay. Steroids, not recommended for spinal cord injury. Correct. Okay. Um, Next, uh, DVT prophylaxis, right? So 50 to 100% of untreated spinal cord injured patients will develop a DVT, right? So it makes sense. Yeah, it's probably the most at-risk group for, uh, for VT. And, and the greatest incidence occurs between three days and two weeks post-op, so pretty early. Yeah. So after considering other injuries and reviewing imaging and discussing with your spine surgery colleagues, early use of chemoprophylaxis should be considered in addition to the thigh-high type of TED compression stockings. Right, get those TED hose on early. Um, next fully catheter placement. So this should be placed in the trauma bay, uh, to avoid bladder distension. And in general, Foley should be removed three to four days post injury. And then you can start intermittent catheterization to avoid infection. And finally, uh, stress ulcer prophylaxis, uh, go ahead and order that PPI adjacent. Yep. Patients with spinal cord injury are at high risk of stress ulceration. All right. So, uh, that wraps it up. Let's finish with a quick review. Okay. For patients at low risk of C-spine injury, the Nexus guidelines or the Canadian C-spine rule can be used to determine who needs a CT scan of the C-spine. The EAST guidelines conditionally recommend cervical collar removal after a negative high-quality CT of the C-spine in obtunded patients. Then a WTA-led prospective multicenter observational study of blunt trauma patients who failed Nexus clearance determined that CT had a negative predictive value of 99.9% for clinically significant cervical spine injury. Right on. So uh, the Asia impairment scale, we talked about that. That can be used to classify spinal cord injuries. Next, we want to avoid hypoxia. We want to be aware of impending airway and or breathing compromise in patients with high uh, spinal cord injuries. And we want to think about the challenges related to intubating a patient who requires inline stabilization from from a uh, spinal cord injury. Also, we want to avoid hypotension. First, if the patient is bleeding, figure out how to stop the bleeding and resuscitate with blood products. Remember, this is a trauma patient. Second, uh, we want to maintain maintain our MAPs above 85, uh, and that's to ensure adequate perfusion to the injured cord. And this can be done with fluid resuscitation uh, with or without uh, vasopressors. Well, hey, everyone, thanks for tuning in. 
Be sure to keep listening to the Big T Trauma Series on Behind the Knife. Right, and, and don't be shy. Please uh, reach out to Jason, myself, and the other folks who have been on with feedback or any ideas uh, you might have. We, we'd love to hear all of it. Until next time, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.